This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind the knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource, just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind-the-knife resources, like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode in our emergency general surgery series on Behind the Knife. I'm Graham Skelhorn-Gross, PGY5 in general surgery at the University of Toronto, and I'm here with Dr. Jordan Nada, acute care surgeon and trauma trauma surgeon at the University of Manitoba, as well as Dr. Ashley Nadler, acute care surgeon at the University of Toronto. Hello. Hi. So this uh, episode, we wanted to talk about cirrhosis in the setting of emergency general surgery. Of course, these are challenging patients to manage. The decision-making can be quite nuanced, and the operative approach is fraught with complications. We see many cirrhotic patients on call with acute general surgery concerns, such as gallstone disease, gastrointestinal bleeding, and even appendicitis. Yeah, thanks, Graham. It's going to be great to go through some cases and outline an approach to decision-making and management in these patients. I think it's important to realize that no decision, especially in this context, is going to be perfect given this high-risk group. So it's about using the best available evidence to make the safest and most reasonable decision that you can. And some of these patients may have known cirrhosis, making it more obvious to anticipate challenges and provide informed consent. But some patients may not have a diagnosis yet. So it's important to go through labs and imaging on all patients to look for signs of liver dysfunction and portal hypertension. Absolutely. I think it's a good starting point uh, to look for signs of cirrhosis on physical exam in any patient that you see and assess liver enzymes and function tests, sodium and creatinine. Um, I'll also look at platelets as a sign of portal hypertension and imaging is also really helpful for this. 
An ultrasound may, that may have been done to look for signs of gallstone disease could also show a nodular liver surface, hepatomegaly, hypoechoic liver nodules, or splenomegaly. Uh, and a CT could show similar findings, as well as hypertrophy of the caudate lobe in segments two and three, atrophy of the right lobe and the left lobe medial segments, widening of the fissures and the porta hepatis and regenerative nodules, varices, recannulation of the umbilical veins, which can be important for your incision planning if you're operating, and ascites. Wow, so lots of stuff to look for. I, I really worry about these patients in the acute setting since they have such a high morbidity and mortality. I've used the child's Pew score to help predict their mortality and help with discussing goals of care. I know a lot of our listeners are probably quite familiar, but for those who aren't, the score incorporates bilirubin, albumin, INR, ascites, and encephalopathy. And it does this to estimate cirrhosis severity, so a higher score represents worse disease. We'll include the scoring system in our show notes. For sure, Graham. The Child Pew score estimates and categorizes cirrhosis severity and has been used to predict operative mortality. With a mortality of 10% electively and 22% emergently for Child Pew A, 30% electively and 38% emergently for B, and 80% electively and as high as 100% emergently for Child C. So while the predicted mortalities are extremely high, they don't even take into account the patient's comorbidities or hemodynamic status. It's also important to remember that these mortality rates are taken primarily from older studies and changes in practice and critical care may make them modestly less dismal. We can also use the MELD or the model for end-stage liver disease score for prognostication. Uh, it was initially developed for transplant assessment, but can also be helpful in assessing cirrhosis uh, severity and predicting surgical mortality. Uh, it involves a calculation that uh, incorporates creatinine, bilirubin, INR, and sodium, uh, and we've included that in the show notes as well. Essentially, the higher the score, the greater the post-operative mortality. For elective surgeries, it was found that mel uh, for MELD scores under 20, there's about a 1% increase in mortality with each additional point increase. Once the MELD score gets over 20, however, each point increase results in about a 2% increase in mortality. Again, it's important to take this uh, with a grain of salt because it doesn't include the comorbidities or surgery-specific concerns. Uh, but these scores can be useful for prognostication and goals of care conversations, even though they're not perfect. It can also be helpful to look at the number of organ systems that have failed or are dysfunctional in the emergency setting, as multi-organ failure has a very poor prognosis in the context of cirrhosis. Yeah, for sure. The emergency setting really complicates things, as we know. There's a four to ten times higher mortality and five to seven times higher morbidity for emergency uh, cases over elective surgeries in cirrhotic patients. So no wonder we're so worried about these patients when they present with an acute care or general surgery concern. And all these increased risks uh, can make it quite uh, intimidating to get a consult for a cirrhotic patient with an intra-abdominal emergency. Uh, so it's important to ensure that you call for senior help if you don't have the expertise in managing these patients and that you make sure that your center is equipped to deal with them in terms of, ha of having access to the ICU and interventional radiology as appropriate. Yeah, for sure. Asking for help and having the right resources for these patients is essential. Now that we've scared everyone with these statistics, why don't we get into talking about some cases uh, and the nuances in different patients? Yes, absolutely. To the good stuff. So let's start with a case that I'm sure will sound relatively familiar to most general surgeons. Graham, as usual, we're going to put you in the hot seat. So a 55-year-old male presents to the emergency department with several days of worsening pain around his umbilicus. He discloses that he's been told that he has, quote, liver problems in the past, but his records are from another region and they're not accessible. 
He otherwise has hypertension, dyslipidemia, and the only surgical history he has is a previous fixation for a tip-fib fracture. He drinks about 12 to 15 ounces of alcohol a day and actively smokes. On exam, he's hemodynamically stable, but he's got a notable finding of a tense, reddened, tender umbilical hernia, uh, which is not easily reduced, and signs of chronic liver disease on exam. So what investigations might you want, and what will your plan be? Okay, well, uh, based on this story, he clearly has some degree of liver disease, and it appears that at minimum he has an incarcerated umbilical hernia. My my takeaway here, though, is that with the current information we have, we aren't really going to be able to risk stratify him for any potential operative management. So assuming that I won't be able to get these out-of-region records that you harshly withheld, I would start with obtaining basic blood work, so that would include a CBC, lights, creatinine, as well as the additional values I'll need to calculate my child pew and or melt score. So that would include bilirubin, albumin, and INR. Um, and then I'd also want to get some imaging of the abdomen. Preferably, that would be a CT. I think the CT in a stable patient in this situation is a great move, Graham. We know that this patient has a good chance of needing an operation, but the urgency certainly changes with a loop of incarcerated or strangulated bowel. This also gives us a decent look at the liver, liver contour, signs of portal hypertension and varices, and degree of ascites, which will help with our child's Pew score. Yeah, for sure. And don't forget about the value of looking for signs of encephalopathy as well when it comes to risk stratification. A quick test for asterixis is pretty valuable here if the patient isn't overtly encephalopathic. Um, and so you get the CT in this case, and it shows that he has fluid and momentum in the hernia, but no bowel. He's got moderate ascites and some signs of portal hypertension. So what's the plan now? Okay, so just fluid and momentum. So that tells me that we have some time to formulate a plan and really optimize this gentleman's care. Given that he has a symptomatic hernia, which is currently incarcerated, I think in most cases an operation is warranted. However, I do want to give some thought to managing his ascites first to so that we can really try to give him the best possible outcome. Yeah, that's a great call. Severity of ascites and the associated intra-abdominal pressure is a big driver of outcome differences in this population. I think we need to get this patient started on aggressive medical management for his ascites, typically with furosemide and spironolactone right away, and then consider paracentesis until his ascites is completely controlled. You may even consider a TIPS or transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, try saying that three times fast, procedure in the right circumstances to improve portal hypertension. Getting our colleagues in medicine and hepatology involved here is likely really valuable as well. Couldn't agree more, Ashley. So we get his ascites controlled, and we find that he's a child PUC and has a MELD score of 27. Hepatology helps us out and feels like he's optimized after a few days. So what do we do now? All right. So always great to get help from our colleagues. I think we've now successfully turned this from an emergence to an urgent problem. So now we can have a, a really um, thorough discussion with the patient and their family about an operation. And assuming that they're accepting that his risk of complication and mortality from an operation is still quite high, um, but perhaps the risks are even higher without one, I would uh, plan to proceed with an umbilical hernia repair. Yeah, it's a hard decision to make, but I'd agree. Existing evidence would suggest that in cases of complicated umbilical hernias and cirrhosis, the risks of non-intervention are likely higher than operating. So turning this into a semi-elective situation, though, I think has done a great service to the patient. So Ashley, here's where things get a little extra complicated. Are we doing this open or laparoscopically? Are we using a mesh? What do you think? Yeah, it's a tough call. There's debate on these things, even in non-cirrhotic patients. So in this situation, I would personally favor doing it open. If it's tension-free and small, it can be closed primarily. If it's larger and there's no sign of infection in the field, I would favor using a mesh. 
Laparoscopy can be considered in these patients, but I think it depends on preference and skill set. MESH seems to substantially decrease the rate of recurrence, and requirement for MESH explantation appears quite low. Some practitioners would even consider it in an infected field, but that's a pretty controversial area. I'm in the same boat, so I find it's generally open with MESH whenever possible for me, unless it's a tiny defect. Now, Graham, I, I think it's time for a couple of curveballs. Okay, perfect. Uh, so how might your management change if the umbilical hernia had started uh, leaking ascites at presentation? So that's a terrifying and unfortunately pretty realistic scenario. I would want to repair that operatively in pretty short order, and I'd want to start the patients on prophylactic antibiotics, given how devastating an infection of the peritoneal fluid would be in that setting. I think it is still worthwhile, uh, however, to take the time to try to get the ascites under control medically before proceeding if we have a stable patient. Yeah, I completely agree, Graham. I think the only thing I'd add is that I'd personally be a little bit more reluctant in that setting to put a mesh in. I know not everyone agrees with me there, uh, but I feel like the risks associated with the mesh grow quite a bit with that rupture and the associated contamination of the region. It's important to, uh, to keep in mind, too, that signs of scabbing or necrotic tissue on the hernia might be indicative of an impending leak or a leak that's been intermittently closing over. So keep that in mind with these patients. So finally, what if the patient's unstable or if there's signs of bowel incarceration or strangulation or even the dreaded evisceration through the umbilical hernia? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in those scenarios, I think, unfortunately, our, our hands pretty much force. Um, assuming that it's within the patient's wishes, uh, I would book them emergently for a repair. Um, now, my plan would um, generally be for a primary repair in most cases, and uh, and then I'd have to plan to manage the, the ascites aggressively with medication and drainage postoperatively. Speaking of drainage, I think these emergent cases where you haven't had a chance to control the ascites preoperatively are when drains right might really come in handy. Whether or not you leave drains after these cases in all comers is debatable, but when you expect to have to control ascites perioperatively, I think you really benefit the patient in leaving drains. Yeah, I, I think I'd leave drains in this case too, you know, or if ascites control is still requiring a lot of paracentesis in our uh, pre-optimized patients. One other consideration is in your stable patients with symptomatic but not emergently complicated hernias, uh, the best time to repair is likely at a liver transplant if they're a candidate. So always keep the potential transplant in mind when you're discussing these patients. We won't really touch on the elective umbilical her hernia repair for these patients because that's kind of a whole new bag of worms. And there's a reason for that E in EGS. All right. Well, that was a really great case to discuss. There's certainly a lot to consider in cirrhotic patients who present with ventral hernias or umbilical hernias. So let's do one more case on a different topic. Graham, you're looking after a 62-year-old woman with a history of diabetes and hypertension who came into the emergency department with two days of right upper quadrant pain. Her white blood cell count was 14 and her bilirubin was 12. An ultrasound demonstrated a thickened gallbladder wall, stones, and a normal bile duct. How would you proceed? Right. Well, thanks, Dr. Nadler. That, that case sounds fairly straightforward so far, so I would plan to consent her for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Okay, so you're in the OR now. You place your first port, and once you insert your camera, you notice that the liver appears diffusely nodular. Its color is lighter than usual, and uh, the left lobe is quite large. What are you going to do now? Ah, so I figured a twist might be coming. So this sounds like it's an unexpected intraoperative finding of cirrhosis. And as with any unexpected finding, the first thing that I would do is I would ask myself why I was in the operating room. If I was, for example, there for biliary colic, 
I would probably just bail and work up the cirrhosis. However, since I'm there for acute cholecystitis, I think I do. I should do something a little bit more definitive than that. Exactly. As acute care surgeons, we need to take care of the acute emergency. But there are a few important considerations for operating on the gallbladder in a cirrhotic patient and important bailouts to consider uh, when your standard treatment is impossible or safe. Uh, the first thing I do in this scenario is communicate to anesthesia and the whole team that we have an unexpected finding. If we are going to proceed, I'd lower the pneumoperitoneum to maximize venous return. Next, I start to think about exposure. The distribution of the cirrhotic liver, in particular the large left lobe, uh, might make it difficult to see the critical structures, and it may be helpful to add an extra port to help with retraction. Related to retraction, cirrhotic livers can be very heavy, and it can be hard to retract the fundus of the gallbladder over the liver as we normally do. Uh, so I typically get the assistant to grab lower on the gallbladder body and push a little bit laterally in order to help expose Colo's triangle. Thanks. That sounds great, Jordan. Those are really important things to think about. Another consideration when operating on cirrhotic patients is the risk of bleeding. For example, a port insertion through a recannulized umbilical vein can lead to catastrophic bleeding. So if you knew ahead of time that a patient had cirrhosis, cross-sectional imaging to map out the abdominal wall anatomy can be very helpful. If I knew they were cirrhotic ahead of time, I typically place my first port infra-umbilical and my sub-xiphoid port off midline to minimize the risk of hitting one of those vessels. Once in, I totally agree with you about communicating the finding to the whole team. I'd also ask the nurses to have topical hemostatic agents available and get an energy device in the room. Next, I'd evaluate the porta. I'd be very hesitant to do any dissection in the porta or near it if there were portal varices. That could lead to serious bleeding that is very difficult to control. Another place these patients can bleed from significantly is the liver bed. So I'd have a low threshold for performing a subtotal cholecystectomy and leaving the back wall of the gallbladder on the fossa. Related to that, in cases where there's cirrhosis is more than mild to moderate, uh, or if there are signs of portal hypertension, I'd have a pretty low threshold to ask for an opinion from my HPV colleagues if available. It's no shame in backing out or just draining the gallbladder if the risk of dissecting further seems prohibitively high. Most patients, even with pretty bad cholecystitis, will improve with antibiotics and or drainage. Okay, thanks. Those are really helpful tips for operating on cirrhotic patients. So why don't we just take a quick minute to summarize them. So I think, you know, number one, communicate any unexpected findings to the operative team and think of additional adjuncts you may need, such as additional ports, topical hemostatic agents, or energy devices. Secondly, exposure is going to be a challenge. So you may have to alter your typical approach, including where the assistant grabs and retracts the gallbladder. Extra hands can be really helpful with this. Finally, point three, bleeding can be a big deal. So if possible, map out the abdominal wall ahead of time with cross-sectional imaging, stay away from the varices around the umbilicus or porta, and consider a subtotal cholecystectomy to avoid liver bleeding. So what about patients who we know are cirrhotic? How do we decide who to operate on ahead of time? Yeah, good question. So this is something that's definitely worth talking about because this scenario is pretty common. The incidence of gallstones is actually four to five times higher in cirrhotic patients, and we know that they're more likely to require emergency surgery than the general population, uh, probably because of surgeon reluctance to uh, operate on them electively. Yeah, that's right. As surgeons, of course, we're a bit reluctant because we know that these are difficult technical operations and are associated with a high morbidity and mortality. In fact, among patients undergoing cholecystectomy, cirrhosis triples the risk of mortality, and the addition of portal hypertension increases the risk of death 12 times. The factors associated with mortality in cirrhotics are really the same as for abdominal surgery. Increasing age, 
ASA classification three or four, as well as cirrhosis specific factors such as a higher MELD or child score, as we talked about before. Yeah, those are pretty scary statistics. So why don't we cover the spectrum of gallstone disease and see if we can come up with an approach. We already mentioned that if a patient only had biliary colic and an unexpected finding of cirrhosis, we would bail and work them out, work them up. But patients with biliary colic can go on to develop more complicated biliary pathology, which, especially in cirrhotics, can be quite risky for them. So how do we decide who to operate on with biliary colic? Yeah, that's the key question here, Graham. So the first things to determine, as in the general population, uh, whether or not the patient is truly symptomatic. Uh, as we've discussed, gallstone formation is common in cirrhotics, but in general, progression to symptomatic or complicated gallstone disease is only for about 2% per year. So we don't do prophylactic laparoscopic cholecystectomies. For symptomatic patients, elective lap coli is generally considered to be an acceptable treatment for patients with child A or B, but generally not child C cirrhosis. It's important to remember that these operations are technically challenging and have a roughly 20% complication rate, so the consent process is really important in this patient population. Thanks, Jordan. I agree. The consent is really critical to this process and needs to be tailored specifically to each patient. You can use preoperative risk assessment scoring systems to really understand the risk of each individual patient. Uh, you mentioned that we generally perform a laparoscopic cholecystectomy on child A and B cirrhotics. There's a number of studies looking at MELD and outcomes after lap coles. However, there isn't a consistently agreed upon cutoff number. A review of the literature recommended elective surgery for MELD scores below 10, but not for scores over 15. Okay, well, that's really helpful. So we will first determine if the patient is symptomatic and then do a risk assessment and a thorough consent. Now, you mentioned that we typically don't perform laparoscopic cholecystectomy on child C cirrhotics. Is that an absolute rule or are there any exceptions? Like what if they're, uh, you know, unstable or the gallbladder's gangrenous? Well, as you know, I mean, very few rules are truly absolute, but we do try to avoid operating on child C cirrhotics whenever possible. In acute cholecystitis, I'll first try to settle them down with antibiotics, uh, plus minus a percutaneous cholecystostomy tube. Ashley, what's your approach? Um, I think it's important as the umbilical hernia is to consider whether or not in those severe cases, the patient's likely to have a transplant in the near future. There's no better to wait, or better way to get rid of a gallbladder and a cirrhotic than putting in a brand spanking new liver. <laughs> I agree, Jordan. The only situation I could maybe see myself operating on a child C cirrhotic would be in the hemodynamically unstable patient with peritonitis from a gangrenous gallbladder or a life-threatening hemorrhagic cholecystitis where they're too sick to go to interventional radiology. This would be quite uncommon, though. There's not much literature to guide management in these scenarios, and the mortality is over 50%. Okay, so sounds pretty morbid. I'll try to avoid operating on child C's as well. So. You know, what do you guys do in more complicated biliary disease, like child's A and B? How should we think about treating them and when should we operate? I think the first thing to recognize is that these patients can be really sick. In addition to their baseline cirrhosis, they now have an acute issue and they don't have much reserve. This can cause acute deterioration of the remaining liver function, as well as other organs, such as the kidneys. So it's really important to start with a thorough and thoughtful resuscitation that should include fluids and antibiotics. These are definitely resuscitations that you will want to approach in collaboration with colleagues from internal medicine, hepatology, and if necessary, intensive care. Yeah, I agree, Ashley. Once the process is in progress, source control is my next priority, which would generally be a percutaneous cholecystostomy for cholecystitis in these very high-risk patients or ERCP for cholangitis, just as you would in the general population. Both of these procedures are relatively safe in cirrhotic patients, and most patients will improve over the next 48 hours once you get source control. 
Now, again, cirrhotic patients have limited, limited reserve and they may not improve as quickly as you'd expect. So our job really isn't done uh, just because they've had a percutaneous cholecystostomy tube place or an ERCP done. As in the general population, if they aren't getting better or they're getting worse, then you may have to operate. I see. So let's say the tube works and the patient gets better. Their hemodynamics, their liver function improves. How are we going to manage the tube? Are we going to do an interval cholecystectomy? I would wait at least six weeks before offering interval cholecystectomy or longer if that's what it takes in order to achieve sufficient recovery of their liver function. And I would make that decision with input from their hepatologist. The other thing to consider again is where the patient is on the transplant list. If they're going to be transplanted in the next little while, I'd probably just leave the tube in until that point. Really, it's something to think about on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Well, these are some really challenging cases that, uh, you know, we don't uncommonly see on our emergency general surgery services. So I think it was great and really important that we had the chance to discuss them. Um, there were a few things that we didn't get a chance to touch on yet, though, that may be worth reviewing. When, when do you consider tips or involvement of a transplant center? Great questions, Graham. So TIPS, which we mentioned briefly earlier, is transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, uh, is a procedure that we can use to treat portal hypertension. Uh, in the emergency setting, it's generally used for recurrent uh, variceal bleeding or for prophylaxis against future ble- bleeding in severe cases. Um, it's been done before elective surgery and has been shown to decrease the development of acute on chronic liver failure and decrease one-year mortality postoperatively. However, it hasn't been studied in emergency surgery, and most patients in that setting won't have time to get it before they need an urgent operation. It may be worth contacting a transplant center if you have an acute care issue that's urgent but non-emergent for advice. Also, if you have a cirrhotic patient who develops acute on chronic liver failure, it may be worth seeing what transplant options are available. Finally, if you're in doubt about how to manage an acutely ill cirrhotic patient, I think it can be helpful to get advice from a transplant center as it can help with prognosis and discussions with the patient or family. Okay, well, thank you both so much. Uh, As hard as it is and as scary as it is to manage these patients, I I feel like now I have a a better approach to managing them and and thinking about them. So as we always like to do in our EGS series, we like to wrap things up with a game that kind of solidifies some of these principles. So um, I think now we'll challenge Dr. Nada and Dr. Nadler um, in terms of how they would manage cirrhotic patients in some different situations. So this episode's game is called Escalate or Operate. So Escalate would include things like uh, involving your colleagues from interventional radiology or perhaps a transplant and, you know, operates fairly self-explanatory. So as always, I'll give a scenario and then I want to know what, uh, what you would do. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, let's start with you, Dr. Nadler. So a 46-year-old male with appendicitis you know that they're a child's B cirrhotic with no evidence of portal hypertension, what would you do? I think reasonable to operate if the patient is well otherwise um, and they can tolerate an operation. You do have to accept that they have a higher risk of mortality and morbidity, um, but they also have a chance of having recurrence. uh, And so I think reasonable to operate if they can tolerate it, but obviously you have to have that discussion with the patient. What do you think, Dr. Nata? Yeah, I think from my perspective, this one's interesting because I think it's going to depend a lot on the severity of the appendicitis. For a really mild appendicitis with no fecalith or contraindications to medical management, I think I'd probably just treat with antibiotics whenever possible. For any um, you know, moderate to severe appendicitis or with a fecalith, then I think operate, operative management is probably the best way to go, assuming there's no big phlegmon or abscess. 
Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Well, so we'll stick with you, Dr. Nada. You've got a 70-year-old female with a diverticular abscess. Um, they're a child's acerotic. How would you proceed? I think this is going to fall into the escalate category for me. So interventional radiology. Um, I'm going to want to try and get this patient percutaneously drained and stabilized and try to avoid operating on their diverticulitis. Okay, Dr. Nadler, do you agree? Yeah, I do. I would escalate. We would manage these with IR drainage in the non-serotic population. So I would do the same thing in this case. Uh, what's a little bit trickier is do you offer them elective surgery ultimately? But I think we're moving away from that in general for uh, even for complicated diverticulitis. But that's a whole other topic. So uh, escalate in this case. Okay, thanks. So uh, we'll stick with you for the next one, Dr. Nadler. This one's uh, a tricky one. So 53-year-old male, they've got a ruptured hepatocellular carcinoma, and they are, uh, they're unwell. They're in shock. What do you think? These patients can be really sick. Uh, I would go with Escalate. Uh, often there's very little you can do operatively. So really your goal is to get them uh, embolized with interventional radiology. Okay, Dr. Nadler? Yeah, I'm going to completely agree here. My preference is to aggressively resuscitate these patients, try to get them stabilized, reverse their coagulopathy, and get them to interventional radiology and potentially embolize them whenever possible. Operative management of these patients has dismal outcomes. Okay, that's good to know. I won't call you in the middle of the night telling you I want to do a laparotomy and pack this patient. You can always call me, Graham. I'll give you that same opinion. (laughs) All right. Um, so sticking with you, Dr. Nada, the next patient is a 64-year-old female, child's B. cirrhotic with uh, bleeding from rectal varices. Yeah, so I think I'm going to go with the escalate route with this as well. My preference would be to treat this endoscopically whenever possible, and that might include sclerotherapy or banding. You're, of course, going to resuscitate and reverse the coagulopathy as well. Uh, but I would save any type of operative management for people who have only failed several layers of management here. You also have tips in your back pocket here to potentially decrease the portal hypertension. Okay, what do you think, Dr. Nadler? I'm actually going to say operate. So I found that we often don't have endoscopic measures available acutely to manage these patients. You can try packing or topical agents, but I find often they need some sutures placed uh, across the varices to actually control the bleeding. Okay, great. All right, next case. Again, we'll start with you, Dr. Nadler. 72-year-old male with a variceal bleed. It's not able to be controlled by endoscopy. Ah, this is the dreaded case. Um, So I would look at putting a Blakemore tube. Um, So not operate, but I'm going to manage initially. And then really my goal is to temporize the bleeding. And then I would escalate uh, for potentially a TIPS procedure. So escalate. Okay. And Dr. Nada? Yeah, so I agree. You want to use some kind of temporizing measure here, which usually is going to be a Blakemore or some other similar tube. Um, Try to buy yourself some time to potentially escalate to some other therapy. I think it's going to be similar uh, to that ruptured hepatocellular carcinoma, where if you find yourself in the operating room here, you're looking at almost certainly a mortality. Okay. And I have to just put a plug in for the one time in the middle of the night I had to place a Blakemore tube. I had Dr. Nadler's voice in my head as she was the one who taught me how to how to place these. And uh, so I'm very thankful for her for the teaching I received on that. All right. Thanks, Jim. Tough situation when it happens. Absolutely. So uh, so 
I think we're with uh, Dr. Nada. Um, last case, 56-year-old male with cholecystitis and uh, child's A, they're stable. How do you want to manage them? Yeah, so I think if you have a patient with cholecystitis, assuming that the patient is you know stable, as you said, and has no other contraindications to an operation, after discussing the risks and benefits with them, I would favor operating in that patient. Okay, and Dr. Nadler? Yeah, I mean, we talked about trying to avoid operating in some of these patients, uh, especially with the high bleeding risk and mortality. But I think a stable, uh, well-compensated patient with child's A cirrhosis, I think it's reasonable to consider a cholecystectomy. So operate. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. So, um, of course, it's now my turn to announce the winner. Um, but just before we do, we uh, we all wanted to take a minute to really thank the the whole team behind the knife for giving us the opportunity to uh, to create and and uh, produce these episodes. This is our sixth episode in our emergency general surgery series. Thank you to everybody who's uh, who's tuned in and listened to them. Um, it's been such a pleasure for us. We've really enjoyed it. I've learned so much from from both of you, and uh, and we're thrilled to announce that uh, that we've been uh, extended for another six episode with uh, episodes with behind the knife. So um, we'll be producing these for another couple of years. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. We're thrilled. All right. So um, again, arbitrary as always. This week's winner is Dr. Jordan Nada. Thank you so much, Graham. Better luck next time, Ashley. And uh, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.